Today's podcast is sponsored by Avast. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. You can learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Truebill. $5 here, $10 there. Monthly subscriptions often feel like a great deal when you first subscribe but then you don't use them and you forget you signed up. The good news is you can get your subscriptions under control with Truebill. So go right now to truebill.com gold. It could save you hundreds of dollars a year. It was another strong week for the U.S. stock market with both the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ Composite closing Friday at all-time record highs. Look at Tesla. I spoke about Tesla on the last podcast. It was up another 3.5% on Friday, closing, I think, at $1,114 a share. The market cap now $1.1 trillion, increasing Elon Musk's net worth. I think it's now $284 billion. Probably by next week, Elon Musk will be the first $300 billion man, of course, adjusted for inflation, as I pointed out on my last podcast. John D. Rockefeller, I think, clocks in at about $400 billion. But at this pace, it is not going to take too long for Elon Musk to pass him. Of course, in real terms, in earnings, John D. Rockefeller earned a lot more off of his Standard Oil business than Elon Musk now earns off of Tesla or SpaceX. But at this point in time, nobody really cares about earnings. It's all about revenues and hype. And you've clearly got that going on in Tesla. Although not all the stocks participated in the euphoria this week. Take a look at Robinhood. That was another one of the darlings that everybody was excited about. Robinhood dropped about 11.5% during the week. Pretty much all of the loss happened on Wednesday following a worse-than-expected earnings report. Robinhood closed the week just below $35 a share, $34.97, not too far from its all-time low of $33.25. Remember, this stock actually got as high as $85 a few days after the initial public offering. The first day of trading, I think it got off to a hairy start, but then it really got hyped up and there was like a delayed euphoric rally. But now we're down at less than half the price that we hit on its high. And obviously the stock is likely to head a lot lower over time as the company fails to live up to lofty investor expectations. But while most stocks were going up during the week, the price of gold had a down week. Gold was down about $14 an ounce on the week. It did poke above $1,800 a couple of times during the week, but was unable to hold those gains. Gold closed at about $1,785 per ounce. Silver also down on the week, closing back below $24 an ounce, $2,389, I think is where we ended. But the real losses were in the gold mining stocks. The GDX, which is an index of major gold producers, was down almost 4%, 
on the week, which is a very big drop considering that gold itself declined by less than 1%. Leading the GDX lower was Newmont Mining. Newmont dropped by 6% on Friday following lower than expected earnings. The company was supposed to earn 73.6 cents on the quarter and it only earned 60.3 cents. So it missed earnings on the quarter by 18.5%. In money terms, that amounts to $106 million that the market expected Newmont to earn that it didn't earn. Well, the decline in the market cap of Newmont was $733 million. So the value of the company lost seven times the value of the earnings miss. So a pretty big reaction to a lower than expected report, even though Newmont already trades at a pretty big discount to the S&P, the PE on Newmont is about 16, whereas the PE on the overall S&P is about 30. Now, historically, if you look at gold stocks, they normally trade at premiums to the S&P. That's been the historic average, but now you've got Newmont basically at a 50% discount to the S&P 500. That's how little interest there is in mining stocks. Look at Newmont's dividend yield. The dividend yield on Newmont Mining is 4%, and they did not reduce their dividend as a result of that earning miss. Meanwhile, the dividend yield on the S&P 500, of which Newmont is a part, Newmont is the only gold mining company in the S&P 500, the yield on the S&P is 1.2%. So you pretty much have almost four times the yield and half the PE on Newmont that's how cheap the stock is in relation to the S&P, yet it still had a big negative reaction in the market to a miss on earnings for the quarter. And by the way, I'm talking about Newmont, and whenever I talk about individual stocks on this podcast, I am not talking about it for the purpose of making a recommendation. I'm not recommending that anybody go out and buy Newmont. And even if I'm talking about the fact that the stock is cheap and a good value, that is not a recommendation for anybody to go out and buy it. Uh, Because again, as I've explained on this podcast, because I am a licensed FINRA representative, not by choice, I've got no choice. The government says you got to join this so-called private organization. And if you don't join it, well, then you can't practice you know this profession so I've got no choice I'm forced to be a part of it and so I have to abide by the rules and you're not allowed to give investment recommendations on a podcast because I don't know who's listening and so I don't know if the recommendation is suitable for every single person who is listening to this podcast and so therefore I can't give the recommendation unless I first know who I'm talking to and can assess uh, their risk tolerance and other things about investment objectives and then if I can do that then I can make a recommendation so I'm just talking about Newmont or any other stocks just to illustrate points and not to recommend investments but if you look at the reason for the earning miss a couple of important things stand out One is that Newmont reported much higher than expected costs. Raw material costs were higher. Energy costs were higher. In other words, Newmont mining was a victim of inflation. See, inflation made it a lot more expensive for Newmont to get its gold out of the ground. 
But because investors don't seem to worry about inflation because they're so convinced that the Fed is going to successfully fight it off in ways that would be negative for the gold market, the price of gold is not rising as much as the cost of mining it. And so the earnings are suffering, which is ironic because why should a gold stock be a casualty of inflation when it should be a beneficiary of inflation? And the reason it's not is because even though there is a lot of inflation, investors are still not worried that it's going to continue. In fact, they think it's going to stop. And so gold is not getting the bid that it would normally get if investors had a more realistic outlook on inflation and its prospects for getting worse. But none of that is affecting all the other prices. The other prices are simply going up because people don't buy those commodities as a hedge against future inflation. They simply buy those commodities to use them right now. Now, in some cases, the demand for gold is for industrial use and people are buying gold because they need it. But in many cases, people are buying gold even though they don't need it. They're looking to store their purchasing power so they can buy the things that they do need in the future using their gold that other people will need. But if they don't perceive the risks of future inflation, then they're not thinking that they need to hedge it. And so that's why gold is not getting the benefit that it traditionally would from the increase in inflation. But all of this is temporary. Because the idea that inflation is transitory is going to end. The farce that the Fed is going to fight inflation, let alone win the battle, that's going to end. And you're going to see a big move up in the price of gold relative to the mining costs. Now, if you look at 2020, right during that year, it was the opposite. Gold prices were rising much faster than the cost of mining, which is why you saw this big increase in the profitability of these companies and many of them were able to raise their dividends as a result of their revenues rising faster than their costs. But one thing in particular that stands out for the Newmont earning report, other than costs going up and all businesses are experiencing rising costs, in general, that environment would be more bullish for gold companies than other companies because gold companies traditionally can pass on higher costs in terms of higher prices because people are buying gold as an inflation hedge. So as inflation is pushing up your costs, it should also be pushing up even more the demand for gold as a hedge against future inflation. Again, that's not happening right now. It will. But the big thing about this earnings report to me was that a lot of the miss was a direct result of COVID. Not only were costs up, but mine production was down because the miners were not there. People weren't on the job. They were home for whatever reason. They have COVID. They don't want to get COVID. Maybe there were certain supplies that the company wasn't able to get. And so they didn't need the workers because they didn't have the tools or the supplies that those workers would have needed to perform their work. But a lot of the myths related to the fact that they didn't pull as much gold out of the ground. But there's a big difference between when a gold company doesn't earn money and a lot of other businesses like, for example, Robinhood that I just mentioned. I mean, Robinhood's earnings were down because they didn't make as much money from their customers trading. 
They didn't get the revenues that they were looking for. And so their earnings were lower. Those sales are lost forever. They're never coming back. In contrast, if you have a gold mining company and for some reason they're not able to bring the gold out of the ground for whatever reason and their earnings are down because they temporarily were not able to produce as much gold, all of those sales are still going to happen. They're just going to happen a little bit later because the gold is still in the ground, which means it's still a resource on their balance sheet that they're going to mine. So maybe they mine it a little bit later, but they still end up mining it. So the only real loss should be the time value of money, which is minimal right now, given that interest rates are at zero. So is it really that bad if the production gets pushed into next year, for example, or the year after that, when interest rates are so low? Doesn't really matter much at all. But another factor also depends on the price of gold. Obviously, if the future price of gold is lower and then the gold is mined at a lower price and sold in the future, well, that's a negative. But what if your outlook is positive for gold? What if you think gold is going to be more valuable in the future than it is today? That means it may actually end up being a plus for Newmont that they didn't mine the gold this quarter. If they're going to mine it in a future quarter when the price of gold is much higher, they'll end up making a lot more money selling the gold later than selling it now. And since the discount rate is so low because rates are so low, it actually would be a net positive for the stock to sell the gold at a higher price in the future than it would be to sell it at a lower price now. But nobody is thinking that way because the sentiment for the miners has never been this negative. I mean, you would think there'd be a lot of bullishness out there given all the inflation, but that's not the case. I mean, maybe there's bullishness out in the cryptocurrencies, and I'll talk about that next, but we're not seeing it in the mining stocks. And if you really take a look at and compare how the market reacted to the Newmont earnings to how it reacted to Robinhood. Oh, even before I mentioned that, I talked about the Tesla because Tesla, the big jump this week in Tesla had to do with an order it got from Hertz Rent-A-Car. And I don't know how much profit that order is going to end up earning Tesla. Several hundred million dollars. I don't know, maybe even a billion. I doubt it'll be that much. But the stock gained well over a hundred billion dollars in market cap based on that order. So the stock gained more than a hundred times the profits that Tesla stands to earn on that order. Right, So the market very excited about a positive news aspect for Tesla, but look at how it reacts to the negative news for Newmont. So again, the stock declined, as I said, seven times. The market cap dropped by seven times as much as the earnings miss. Robinhood, in contrast, Robinhood was supposed to lose, right? They don't even have any earnings. They were supposed to lose 85 cents, something like that per share. Instead, they lost over $2 a share. So they lost 140% more than the market thought. So almost 10 times as big, not quite eight times as big a miss as Newmont. Yet Robinhood only lost $307 billion of market cap, which was about three and a half times what they lost. So Robinhood's market cap 
is three and a half times the losses. And Newmont's is seven times, basically twice as big a reaction to a miss that's only one eighth as big. So investors punished Newmont disproportionately to the way investors punished Robinhood. Not nearly as heavy a toll exacted on Robinhood as Newmont, despite the fact that Robinhood's missed revenues will never come back. It's not the same thing as Newmont, where they're going to be able to eventually mine the gold that they didn't mine in that quarter. In a future quarter, the trading commissions that Robinhood did not earn during that quarter, they're not going to be earned again in the future. It's not like their customers are going to think, oh, I didn't trade enough last quarter. I need to trade extra now to make up for it. No, they're just going to trade as much as they're going to trade. And the profits are going to be what they're going to be. So that miss is permanently lost. And that's the cases for a lot of businesses. You know, if you have a restaurant and you have to close your restaurant due to COVID, the sales that you lose, they're lost forever. I mean, the people are not going to just eat more once you reopen. They're just going to return to their normal dining habits. They're not going to dine at your restaurant more often to make up for the fact that they weren't able to go there in the past because they only eat a certain amount of food and they eat out a certain number of nights per week. And so nothing is going to change. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. In contrast to these gold mining companies, whatever gold they don't mine today, they're going to mine tomorrow. The gold's not going anywhere. It's still in the ground. And the reality is the gold that's in the ground is going to be much more valuable than the gold they're selling right now because at some point the price is going to take off. Avast has been a global leader in cybersecurity for more than 30 years, and it's now trusted by over 435 million users worldwide. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. You can learn more about Avast One at Avast.com. Avast has an award-winning antivirus that stops viruses and malware from harming your devices. It gives you data breach monitoring, enabling you to find out if your online accounts have been compromised or whether your passwords need to be changed. You've got firewall protection, keeping your personal information secure and preventing attacks that seek to access your computer or steal your data. You also get ransomware protection, securing your personal photos, documents, and other files from being modified, deleted, or encrypted by ransomware attacks. It even speeds up your PC by optimizing the background activity consumed by your apps. I've been using Avast myself for years to help protect my personal data on my own computer, which is one of the reasons I was so happy to have been approached for them as a sponsor for this podcast. In fact, Avast prevents over 1.5 billion attacks each and every month. And with Avast One, you can confidently take control of your online world without worrying about viruses, 
phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking, or other cyber crimes. You can learn more about Avast One at Avast.com. But investors are not acting rationally. That was also a point that I discussed in my last podcast. If you look at most of the companies that are coming public, and it's probably not most, it's probably all. I mean, there may be uh, some exceptions to this, but I'm not really sure who they are. But all these new companies that are coming public, many of them uh, using the SPAC vehicle, and I talked about that on a recent podcast as well. But most of these companies that are coming public are losing money. And in fact, it's almost as if they're losing money by design because the companies are not valued based on their profits. They're valued based on their revenue. And there's an old joke about a company that loses money on every sale but it's okay because they make it up on volume. And, you know, that is supposed to be a joke. It's supposed to be funny, except now it's true. Companies that lose money on every sale are making it up on volume. That's the ridiculous nature of this speculative mania because the greater your sales, if your company is valued based on your revenues, if losing money on a sale generates more revenue, then the more sales you have, the more revenue you have. And so you do make it up on volume in your share price, in your valuation. But companies are not valued on their sales. Sales don't mean anything if you can't turn them into a profit. You value a company based on the difference between its sales and its costs. And if that's not a positive number, then the business is not creating any value. And if the business is not creating any value, it's worthless. In fact, it's less than worthless because you have to feed it. You have to keep giving it new money to sustain it. So it's got a negative value because you have to keep throwing good money after bad in a bottomless pit to keep the operation going. And so normally in a free market, if a company isn't making money, it's going to cease operations. The owners of the business will look at these future losses and not want to continue to subsidize them. So they will shut the business down and free up the resources, the land, labor, and capital to be put to a productive use, which would benefit society. Because the more resources are held captive by a money-losing company, the worse off society is. Because if businesses are taking these scarce resources and destroying value, they are preventing other entrepreneurs from using those same resources to create value. Because again, the resources are scarce. They're not unlimited. And so the labor that one company is using is labor that another company can't use. The raw materials that one company is using are raw materials that another company can't use. So the idea is for money losing businesses to go out of business quickly so that profitable companies can put those resources to better use. But today, money-losing companies can live indefinitely. They're like zombies. Obviously, if I have a business where I am selling dollar bills for 90 cents, I can have a booming business. I mean, who wouldn't want to buy a dollar bill for 90 cents, right? I can corner the market on selling dollar bills for 90 cents. I can have massive revenue in that business model. But does that business model have any value? Of course not, right? Because I'm never going to make any money. Now, of course, none of these companies claim that they're going to lose money forever, right? They're losing money now 
simply to lay the foundation for profitability at some far off point in the future. They don't really know when that is, but they're obviously not going to say that we're going to sell dollar bills for 90 cents forever. We're just going to sell them at 90 cents for a while. And then eventually when the business is really, really successful, then we'll start selling the dollar bills for $1.10 or $1.20, right? And then we're going to make a big profit. Except the minute they start selling those dollar bills for $1.10 or $1.20, no one's going to want to buy them. And so their sales are going to collapse. And so the whole business falls apart. Now, obviously, this is not what companies are saying. But if you actually think about their business model, that's what they're intending to do. Because a lot of these companies, the main reason that their sales are growing so rapidly is because they are underpricing their products. They're basically giving consumers more value than what they're paying for. A lot of it has to do with the marketing expenses and other ways that they drive revenues and give away stuff for free. And what a lot of investors probably don't understand, or maybe they don't even think about this, is that if the companies at some future point, if they try to price their products in a way that would generate a profit, they may destroy the very value proposition that their customers were deriving from the products. In other words, the businesses have value so long as they operate at a loss because then there is a value proposition to the customer. But if the business now has to generate a profit and therefore raise the price in order to do it, the consumer may no longer value the product as much and then would not be buying it, and so the revenues would collapse. And that means these companies are never actually going to make a profit. So in reality, they do intend to sell dollar bills for 90 cents indefinitely because they can't raise the price above a dollar without destroying their market. But at some point, if that is your business model, it is going to implode. Everything has to crash. The question is when. You know, all those monthly subscriptions really add up. And sometimes we forget about some of the services that we subscribe to, and we don't even notice the charges on our bills or through our bank accounts. In fact, many people have so many subscriptions, it's nearly impossible to keep track or remember the ones that you no longer use. Truebill helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions that you don't need and no longer use. On average, people are saving thousands of dollars a year by using Truebill. See all your subscriptions in one place, keep the ones you want, and cancel the ones you don't right from the app. You can see all your subscriptions in one place, then you can keep the ones you want and cancel the ones you don't right from the app. And your Truebill concierge is there when you need them to cancel your unwanted subscriptions so you don't have to do it yourself. No talking to humans, no difficult conversations, and no salesman trying to convince you to continue a service that you've already decided you don't need. Truebill has over 2 million users and has helped save them over $100 million. In fact, one of the features that I enjoy about Truebill is if any of my charges seem out of whack with their historical averages, Truebill immediately notifies me and I can go back and check and make sure that I'm not getting ripped off. So start canceling your unused subscriptions today at Truebill.com gold. Go right now, Truebill.com gold. It could save you hundreds of dollars a year. 
Now, of course, nowhere is this speculative fervor on greater display than in the cryptocurrency market. And I know there are a lot of people that disagree with me. They see real value in cryptocurrencies. But again, that's part of the bubble, right? Nobody that's trapped in a bubble ever understands that they're in it. And they always look for ways to rationalize the appreciation. But if you look at these cryptocurrencies, the total market cap now on 13,334 cryptocurrencies. In fact, the last time I mentioned the total quantity of cryptocurrencies, it was about 12,700 or so. So we've already shot past another milestone. We'll be at 14,000, obviously, probably within the next few weeks. I forget how quickly these new cryptocurrencies are created, but there's no barrier to entry. You could just keep creating them. The market cap right now is about 2.6 trillion dollars as i'm speaking bitcoin again around 61,000 dominates the crypto universe with about a 44 percent market share although that is relatively low compared to its dominance i mean at one point obviously it was the entire market but i think its historical average even in recent year or two is much greater than this so these altcoins are gaining in value but not at the expense of bitcoin bitcoin's not falling in value Bitcoin's market share is falling just because other cryptocurrencies are rising in price. As Bitcoin is rising, it's just rising more slowly than the combined market cap of all of these alternative cryptocurrencies. But the fact that there are 13,334 cryptocurrencies at this point in time, see that in and of itself disproves the myth that any cryptocurrency is scarce. Sure, Bitcoin itself is scarce in that there's only 21 million Bitcoin. And in fact, a lot of these cryptocurrencies make the same claim. They all claim to be scarce because there's some kind of fixed cap on their supply. So each one in isolation is scarce. But the supply of all cryptocurrencies in total is not scarce at all. It's the opposite of scarce. It's pretty much infinite. There is no limit to how many cryptocurrencies can be created. And the longer the bubble continues to expand, the more and more cryptocurrencies will be created. And so the supply continues to grow. The problem is what happens when the demand stops or shrinks and you have this massive supply. I mean, the prices are gonna collapse. Now, a lot of people will say, well, Bitcoin, is different than all these other currencies. No, it's not. I mean, the similarities are far more numerous and important than the trivial differences. The main difference with Bitcoin is that it was first and that the name is more well-known than the other coins. But so what? That doesn't really amount to much. And I don't care if more money has been invested in that ecosystem. None of it matters. The reason that all these cryptocurrencies can keep being created is because they're basically the same. And so you can't look at the supply of Bitcoin. You have to look at the supply of all the alternatives that compete with Bitcoin. And when you do that, there's nothing scarce. I mean, you could make an argument that Bitcoin was scarce if there was some type of patent 
on the blockchain and that the only way that you can utilize the blockchain was with Bitcoin and Bitcoin was the only cryptocurrency that exists and the only one that will ever exist, then maybe you can make an argument, hey, it's truly scarce and it could work. But if there's an unlimited number of potential competitors that can saturate the market, then the whole scarcity claim goes out the window. And I want to talk in particular about this one cryptocurrency that has been in the news and I haven't really mentioned it on the podcast. I mean, I've been aware of it, but I haven't talked about it. And that's this coin, Shiba Inu, which is a newer version of Dogecoin in that it's another dog coin in that there's an image of a dog, right? Shiba Inu is some type of Japanese breed of a dog and it is riding on the coattails of the popularity of the other doggy coin, uh, Dogecoin or doggy coin, whatever the actual name of it is. So anyway, this particular cryptocurrency didn't even really exist until earlier this year. Right? I think it came out in like April or something like that. And as soon as it came on the scene, it went from zero to a market cap of like $13 billion, like right away, like all these people were buying the coin and then it quickly pulled back down and the market cap stayed at about two or $3 billion just until earlier this month. And then it exploded just out of nowhere. The coin went up to a market cap of about $42 billion. And so right now, if you look at coin market cap, where I was picking up the total number of cryptocurrencies, Shibu Inu is the ninth most valuable cryptocurrency. In fact, it's past Dogecoin. Dogecoin is number 10 and Shibu Inu is now number nine. Now the question is how much higher on the charts can it claim? I mean, it can easily, I think, overtake Polkadot. That one's worth 42 billion. I mean, right now, as I'm speaking, Shibu Inu has dropped. It's at 38. It's down 4.4%. Last I looked at it before I started the podcast, it was higher, it was actually positive, but it's still up about 145% over the past week. So it's been a very strong week, even though it's pulling back. In fact, it may have been number eight earlier in the day or yesterday. It probably was above this polka dot. I'm not sure if it ever got to Ripple. Ripple right now is in seventh place. It's got just over $50 billion market cap. Now, you can't even really talk about the price of Shibu Inu because it trades for a tiny fraction of a penny because the supply of Shibu Inus is a quadrillion. And a quadrillion is what comes after a trillion. So a thousand trillions is a quadrillion. So that's how cheap this particular coin is. I mean, if the coin ever got to a penny, which it's never going to do, I think that would mean 10 trillion at a penny if I'm doing my math right in my head. You know, because if it was a dollar and there's a quadrillion, then if it hit a dollar a coin, the market cap would be a quadrillion dollars, which again is impossible for anything to be worth that much. So it's never going to happen. So this thing is always going to trade in tiny fractions. It's right now 0.00007. So you got five decimal places to the right of the decimal point, tiny, tiny price. But that's part of the appeal of the coin because everybody buys these coins, I guess, by the millions or tens of millions or billions, I don't know, whatever they're doing. So people get to buy a lot of coin for a low price and maybe they think, oh my God, what if it ever gets to a penny, which of course it's not gonna do, 
But, you know, it doesn't have to get to a penny. I mean, it can get to a thousandth of a penny and it would be a massive gain from where it is right now. But the point about Shibu Inu is what is the difference between Shibu Inu and Bitcoin? There's no difference. I mean, everybody is saying, oh, it's a scam. It's a joke. It's a pump and dump. But so is Bitcoin. So are all of these coins. The fact that this coin can arrive on the scene a few months ago and achieve a $40 billion market cap, who's to say that that's not any more viable than any of the other cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin? I mean, the price is going up. I mean, everybody wants to tout Bitcoin based on its appreciation. How much money you would have made had you only bought Bitcoin at a point in the past. And that proves that it's better than gold or it's the best asset because it's gone up the most. Well, it hasn't gone up nearly as much as Shibu Inu, certainly not this week or this year. So why isn't Shibu Inu better than Bitcoin if it has faster price appreciation than Bitcoin, right? It's a better store of value if that's how you're going to define it based on how much it's gone up. Now, people will say, well, sure, Shibu Inu can come crashing down. Yeah, well, then so can Bitcoin. So can any of these coins. It's all about confidence. It's all about perception. And it highlights the lack of scarcity of Bitcoin because now the market has to absorb another coin. Some of the people that might otherwise have bought Bitcoin now can buy Shibu Inu instead. So it's not like Bitcoin has the cryptocurrency market to itself. Every day it has to share that market with more and more altcoins that are ultimately going to siphon demand from Bitcoin. Now, so far, that hasn't stopped Bitcoin from going up, although it has stopped it really from making new highs. I mean, Bitcoin did have a big pullback once it got above uh, that 65,000 high. We did pull back. In fact, we flash crashed, I think, was yesterday. We went down below 58,000, quickly recovered, but there was a big dump in the crypto space in just a matter of minutes. And eventually it's going to flash crash for good, right? It's not going to come back. It's going to crash and then keep on crashing. But the success and the popularity of Shibu Inu just shines a light on the whole mania. And it's laughable when I hear the Bitcoin maximalist talk about how Shibu Inu is a scam, that it's a pump and dump, but Bitcoin is not when fundamentally it's basically the same concept. And because Shibu Inu was so successful, well, more coins are going to come. And what was the secret to their success? Well, Dogecoin was a success because they had a dog. And so we're going to put a picture of a dog on this coin. And so now it's a success. So we got some more coins. I'm sure they're going to come out. Now, I don't know why the dogs work. What about a cat? Maybe someone has to come out with a coin with a cat on it and maybe that one will really go up. And then why not try a pig or a chicken or all kinds of animals? You got tons of different animals or reptiles that you can put on coins. I mean, whatever the theme is and people are just going to buy it, but who cares because all this is nonsense. It doesn't matter what picture I put on a non-existent coin. There is no coin. It's just a string of numbers and the way they choose to depict it is all part of the hype. It's the meme nature of what's going on. And it's the same as what I said earlier about all these companies that are being valued on their revenue rather than on their profits. These cryptocurrencies are not valued based on any fundamentals that would 
give them value. It's all based on hype. It's all based on momentum. And why do people want to buy stock in these money-losing companies? Because other people want to buy stock in these money-losing companies. And the price of the stock of these companies keeps going up. And it doesn't matter how much money they lose because no one cares. And so none of these cryptocurrencies actually have any real value. None of them are actually used as currencies. They'll never be money. They're not stores of value because they have no value to store. They're not units of account. But none of that matters, just like earnings don't matter in a bubble. But just as I said, earnings will eventually matter. The lack of fundamental value will eventually matter to all these cryptocurrencies. And when the demand goes away and you've got this enormity of supply, the entire market's going to crash. And if you think that, hey, all these altcoins are going to crash, but Bitcoin is going to be immune, that somehow Bitcoin is going to escape, that's pure fantasy. All of these cryptocurrencies go up and down together. And so if the altcoins crash, Bitcoin's going to crash too. Now, maybe it will crash more slowly than the altcoins. That may happen, but I don't think investors are going to take a lot of solace in the fact that Bitcoin is crashing at a slower rate than the altcoins. The reality is all of these ships are going to rise and sink on the same tide of investor fear and greed. And right now, the coins are riding a wave of greed, and so everybody is going up. Eventually, they're going to come crashing down with a wave of fear as everybody is looking for the exits. I want to talk about some of the economic data, though, that came out on Friday that I think was very problematic for the gold market, which, again, should not have been problematic, but it was. First one was the employment cost index for the third quarter. And the expectation was for an increase of 0.9. And instead, the gain was 1.3. So higher than expectations, and in fact, the consensus range was from a low of up 0.7 to a high of up 1.1. So we topped the high end. And the same thing with the year-over-year gain. 3.7% was the increase versus a consensus estimate of 1.8. Now, the prior quarter, the year-over-year gain was 2.9. So the markets assumed that labor costs were going to come down Instead, they went way up. In fact, the low end of the range was a gain of just 0.2. And the high end was 3.4. So a pretty wide range. But the real numbers still managed to come in excess of the top end of that range. So this is showing inflation is driving up labor costs. And I think this bigger than expected increase in labor costs is what scared gold investors. After all, more inflation means the Fed is going to fight it. So they're going to tighten up on monetary policy. And therefore, that's bad for gold, except they've done nothing to fight inflation, except talk about it. And talking about it and doing something are completely different things. And so the market still doesn't get that the Fed is crying wolf and that it will continue to cry wolf indefinitely as long as the idiot villagers keep on running. And in this case, they're running away from gold when they should be running towards gold. Then we got the personal income and spending numbers. They also came out. And I think this worked against gold because the personal spending number came out higher than expected. And there was an upward revision to the prior month. So the August increase in personal spending was initially reported as up 0.8. That was revised to up 1%. 
and the consensus for September was a gain of 0.5%. We gained 0.6%. So consumers out there spending more money. And I guess, again, that has implications for inflation and Fed policy. So another headwind for gold, except when you actually look at the number, personal income crashed in September. It was down one full percentage point. That was against an expectation for a fall of 0.1. So basically 10 times the drop in income. And of course, if incomes dropped and spending rose, then savings plunged, which is exactly what happened. But what does this tell you? This means that in order for the spending to continue, once the savings are exhausted, new income is going to have to be there. Well, what's that source of income going to be? It's going to come from the government. The government is going to create more stimulus. They're going to give more people money so they can keep on spending it. And of course, I went over the record trade deficit on my last podcast. Where is this money going? This increase in consumer spending, it's on imports. We could see that in record imports and record trade deficits. So to the extent that consumers are spending more money on imported products, this is inflationary. This is negative for the dollar because we're putting more dollars into global circulation without adequate demand. I mean, the only demand for dollars is to speculate on overpriced or money losing U.S. tech companies. But that demand is not going to be there forever. And when it goes, there's nothing left to support the dollar. There's certainly no demand for U.S. treasuries at these ridiculously low rates. So there's only demand for these speculative stocks. But I look at this personal income and spending number as being bullish for gold because it shows that more money is being spent on imports and that incomes are inadequate to finance the spending. And therefore, the Federal Reserve is going to come up with even more stimulus. We're going to be sending out more checks to people who don't have the incomes. But in order to keep them spending, we're going to have to replace the incomes they don't have with new money that the Fed prints. We did get the Chicago PMI, though, on Friday. That was a higher than expected number. So I think that also weighed on the price of gold. It was supposed to come out at 64.2, and instead it came out at 68.4, well above even the high end of estimates. So I think gold had a lot of trouble with that number. Also, consumer sentiment, which has been low, came out higher than estimates. It was 71.4 in the prior month. And the consensus was for 71.4 again, and we got 71.7. So that was another, I think, factor. But given all of this negative news, gold actually held up pretty well on the day. You know, it was down about $23, $24 on the lows of the day, but it managed to end the day only losing about $14. So I think gold held up pretty well. There is a lot of demand for gold below $1,800. There's a lot of supply, a lot of selling just above 1800 So it's a very narrow band. I think what it really is a coiled spring. I think we are consolidating. And I think we'll run out of sellers long before we run out of buyers. In fact, I think the buyers will become increasingly more aggressive. And so the price at which they're willing to buy will gradually creep up to the point where they're buying above 1800 The supply will have been exhausted. And then I think once we get a little bit higher than 1800 I think there's very little selling that's going to come into the market. And we can see a quick move up to 2000 And that should be extremely positive 
for these gold stocks, which are not holding up nearly as well as the metal itself, based on all of this negativity about the metal, even though that negativity is not actually proving to be true because gold is not falling the way gold stock investors assume that it will. But I want to go back and talk a little bit more about the consumer sentiment number because even though the number rose a bit and so it wasn't as bad as expected, I think when you look beneath the surface, it was actually worse. The current conditions component actually dropped to its weakest level since April of 2020. And that was the depths of the COVID lockdown. So we're back down to that level now for current conditions. And if you look at the buying attitudes for vehicles and large household durables, they fell to new all-time record lows. So the number of people who are planning on buying a new car or a major appliance, that's at a record low. Why is that? Because prices are going up. Prices are at record highs. So people are being priced out of the market. And so they can't afford to buy these large items, big ticket items. And so they're no longer expecting to do it. So this is a negative sign. On the other end, inflation expectations are holding at the highest levels again since 2008. We're at 4.8%. That's the inflation that consumers expect in the future, not in the past, but Going forward, consumers' expectations are at 4.8%. Again, Jerome Powell is on record as saying that the most important indicator for the Fed is expectations, that the Fed wants to make sure that even if inflation is up today, that long-term expectations remain anchored at 2%. Well, clearly, they're unanchored. We're at 4.8%. We're miles above the 2%, and the Fed does nothing. So then that was just another lie when it was convenient to tell it because the Fed told that lie before inflation expectations spiked. So it was able to point to that number as a reason that it wasn't concerned. Well, now that those expectations have spiked, the Fed is still unconcerned, proving that at the time they mentioned this, they were lying. And now they just have to come up with another excuse why they're not doing anything. Well, eventually they run out of excuses. The market is going to see through this smokescreen and they're going to start reacting, which means buying gold, buying silver, and buying these gold stocks. And the other factor that is going to create more demand for these stocks is going to be the passage of the infrastructure bill and the other big omnibus spending bill. Oh, by the way, on the last podcast, I had forgotten to mention that that $1.3 trillion infrastructure bill had been pared back. It's only $550 billion now, thanks to some of the moderate Democrats basically refusing to support a, a more ambitious bill in the Senate. But still, that bill is going to cost more than the government thinks. Because what's going to happen, obviously, is once the government tries to spend a lot of money on infrastructure, the cost of all the raw materials and the labor that are going to be necessary to complete these projects are going to go up, right? Because there's all this new demand for these scarce resources. So prices are already rising before the infrastructure bill is even passed. So the government hasn't even started to spend this money because if the government is going to take these scarce resources from the public and use them on infrastructure, the price is going to go up. They're going to have to bid these resources away from the private use that they otherwise would have been put to 
in the absence of the infrastructure bill. The infrastructure isn't free. So the mere fact that we're going to build stuff and the building process is going to require raw materials and labor, the price of that labor is going to go up. And that means the infrastructure bill is going to end up costing a lot more than they think. But then so will everybody else, because now the private sector, if it wants some of those resources, it has to compete with the government demand. So everybody is going to pay higher prices for raw material. Everybody is going to pay higher labor prices. And so all of this is ultimately going to be paid by the consumer in higher prices for the finished goods. The other bill, though, the $1.75 trillion bill, I mean, that one is having some problems. In fact, they're both having some problems now, but my guess is that they're going to be ironed out. You've got some of the very liberal or far left Democrats that are threatening, hey, they don't want either of these bills because they're too small. Right. A lot of the Democrats, the squad, those kind of people, they're upset at some of the stuff that was left out. And, you know, I meant to talk about this on my last podcast. In fact, I teased it and then I forgot to talk about it. But two of the big items that were missing from the infrastructure bill are the family and medical leave and the free college. And initially they were talking about 12 weeks of paid leave, which would have cost a fortune because, again, They underestimate how many people are actually going to take the leave because they assume that people are only going to use it if they have a real emergency, but they're not. They're going to take advantage of it. It's a paid vacation. People are going to lie and make up the emergency. So a lot more people would be putting in for the leave than is in the budget and therefore the cost would explode. And so initially they pared that down to four weeks, which is one month off instead of three months off, but still that would have been a problem, especially during the summers, because I think most people, especially if they're living in cold climates, their family or medical emergencies would always happen probably over the summertime because that's when they can enjoy their vacation more. So it'd be very problematic for the economy when everybody takes the summer off. So at least if they only took four weeks off, they would only take part of the summer instead of the entire summer off. But that ended up getting jettisoned The cost obviously would be astronomical, and so it's not there. But a lot of these Democrats, the liberals, are hopeful that they'll slip this thing back in, but they're kind of threatening not to support it if it's not there. And the same thing with free college. I mean, they put in free preschool, but not free college. And again, what a disaster that would have been. Nothing is more expensive than what you get for free. And so college costs are already exploding when they're not free, And to the extent that we made college free, then the cost of providing that free college to society would be much greater than what the cost is now when at least people have to foot the bill. Even if they can foot the bill with a government loan, at least there's some hesitance to take on debt. I mean, not much, but there's some. But if it's free, then there's none whatsoever. I mean, if something is free, well, you'll take as much as you can get. And I think it opens the door to even more fraud waste and higher tuitions in college once they know that it's being supplied for free. And then, of course, there is no guarantee that Joe Manchin or Cinema, the two moderate Democrats, that they're even going to sign on to it. I mean, they keep changing their minds. So who knows? Maybe they'll be there. Maybe they won't. I don't think there's any Republicans who are really going to go for the $1.75 trillion bill. They will support the infrastructure bill. That one actually does have bipartisan support. So in order for that one not to pass, you have to have a lot of Democrats that come out against it on the grounds that it's not big enough. 
that it doesn't spend enough money. But ultimately, I think the Democrats who claim that these bills aren't big enough and they're not going to vote for them, at the end of the day, they're going to think it's better than nothing. I mean, some spending is better than no spending as far as they're concerned. So if they can't get everything on this bill, they should settle for what they can get now and then try to get more later. But then you actually have some of the Democrats that are claiming they're going to hold off on supporting this bill unless there's some relief on the SALT tax. Because remember, the upper income people got a tax hike as a result of the Trump Tax Cut and Jobs Act, which capped the deductions for state and local income taxes. Well, now you have a lot of Democrats in states where they have high state income taxes, particularly in the Northeast or California, and they're claiming, hey, we want to change that and we're not going to vote for this unless you cut taxes on the rich people that live in their districts. So at the one hand, you have Democrats claiming that the rich need to pay more, that they're not paying enough taxes. And then on the other hand, you have these Democrats who want the rich in their own district to pay lower taxes. They're basically saying the rich people that live in my district, they're being taxed too much and we want to give them a tax cut At the same time, the broader message is that the rich are getting away with murder and we need to tax them more. You have this hypocrisy on display where they publicly claim they want to tax the rich more, but privately they're threatening not to support these bills unless there's tax cuts for the rich that are in their districts. But hypocrisy, I think, is the one thing that almost all politicians have in common, but they never seem to be held accountable for it, not by the media and certainly not by the voters. 